Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Shares for beginners. With the COVID crash, as we all remember, I think the market lost about 35 40%. And I remember when that was happening. And uh, I'm also a big fan of the dollar cost averaging strategy. And for those listeners who don't know what dollar cost averaging is, it basically means that instead of spending all your money once a year, you invest it, say, 10 or 12 times per year just to level out the risk. And so to me, like when the market's booming, or when it's like, oh, hooray, my portfolio's gone up in value. And then when the market goes down, it's a hooray, I can get shares at a discounted price. G'day, and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. How can you buy happiness? Is it something that can be bought? In the immortal words of Van Halen's David Lee Roth, money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a boat big enough to sail right up next to it. To discuss money and happiness, I'm joined by my guest, David Allen. Hi, David. Hi, Phil. Oh, yeah, it's great to be here. That's good. And um, how's the money situation? Yeah, uh, I can't complain. Is it getting to David Lee Roth level yet? Have you got the boat yet? Not quite that level, and I think I still have quite a long way to go. And I have to say, it's quite an honor to be on your show, and I see that um, it's almost been three years. You might have to have a birthday podcast soon for your podcast. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> it's just another year gone as far as I'm concerned. Dave is a Brisbane-based author who's working hard so he doesn't have to work hard later in life. He's primarily a shares and real estate investor, but he has insights on bonds and cryptocurrency as well. He released the books How to Buy Your Happiness at the End of 2021 and A Noob's Guide to Riches in Early 2019. So, seeing this is the first fresh episode of the new year, I thought we'd hear about one man's journey to financial independence, which you're on the path of at the moment, aren't you? Uh, yes, that is correct. So I have to say this path to financial independence or this path to trying to find the way to buy your own happiness, this journey actually started two years before I was born. And so in 1981, there's this guy in Michigan, his name was Angus Campbell, and he basically did a nationwide survey and what actually makes people happy. And there were the usual predictable things like a positive attitude, having great family and friends and you know all the obvious ones. But one thing that was by far the biggest factor though was having autonomy of your life or control of one's own destiny or to live a life that is self-endorsed. And so I asked myself, how do you live a life that is self-endorsed? And to me, a big stepping stone to get there is to actually achieve financial freedom. So as an example, if you could pick a job that you love to do and it doesn't quite pay the mortgage, or you could pick a job that pays very well, but you don't like it, but it does pay the mortgage. And unfortunately, most of us are in a situation where we need to do the job that pays the mortgage. And so as far as the path on how to achieve happiness, to me, it's all about achieving financial freedom first, and then you actually have the freedom to live a life that you've self-endorsed or self-chosen, and that's basically the first big stepping stone. So, Dave, does that mean that you should be doing the job that uh, you're not quite happy doing just because it pays the mortgage? There's two ways to approach this. There could be a job that you love, or then you're already living the life that you self-endorsed, but in reality, it is actually pretty hard to find a job that you would love for your entire career. And so with that, it is an individual choice. But for me, there is a lot of merit in picking employment that you may not necessarily love and just having that focus of having a long-term picture. And that is what a lot of the FIRE movement is about, the financial independence retire early. Who was that person that you were talking about before? What was his name? 
Uh, so his name is Angus Campbell. Is he kind of a pioneer of um, the fire movement? Actually, no. He's basically not in the money circles at all. He's more in the psychology circles. And so he's basically purely a psychologist. But then his work has been interpreted by other authors such as Morgan Housel and a few other ones. And then they subsequently after him made the money link. Yeah. I guess it's also the thought about freedom, isn't it? It's looking for um, what's going to bring you freedom in life. Absolutely. And there's a lot of people that sort of criticize the whole fire movement or the whole attempting to retire early movement. And they sort of have this image to say that, oh, if you could retire by 45, well, then your life's going to get very boring and you're going to get bored. But the reality is, though, is that 80% of millionaires actually still choose to work even though they didn't need to. And to me, that just screams happiness. Like they don't need to work, but they actively happily choose to get up to work every morning just because they love what they do. It's also that you um, have freedom to choose things as well. So you mightn't even want to be retired, but um, you might be able to do that job that you like doing, but it's not going to pay as much because the mortgage is covered or paid or paid off or whatever the idea of um, freedom is. Yeah. And another way to look at it too is that not only are you sort of buying happiness, but you can sort of buy to prevent certain types of sadness. For example, if you're struggling to pay your bills, that is a big stress inducer. So even if you can shut down the arguments for not being able to buy happiness, you can definitely argue that it does prevent many types of sadness. <laughs> That's right. So you're a FIFO fiery, a fly-in, fly-out fiery. Has this given you a lot of time to ponder budgets and money? Yes, absolutely. So a lot of the approach that I take to my investing is actually out of a workplace health and safety point of view. Tell us about that. Yeah, so think about any office that you've ever been to and you'll see that there'll be first aid kits everywhere, there'll be defibrillators everywhere and there'll be fire extinguishers everywhere. But when you actually sit down and think about it, you think, well, but how often does a fire or a heart attack happen in an office? And the answer to that is that it's extremely rare. But it is because the consequence of that event happening being so severe, even though it is unlikely, that offices have risk mitigation strategies in place for that. And I think the same strategy needs to be applied for our portfolios as well. So when we buy into an investment, whether it be crypto, shares, real estate, whatever it is, every investor has a bit of a think to themselves, like what's the likely good case scenario and what's the likely bad case scenario? But I think one extra question that we need to ask is that what is the extremely unlikely possible worst case scenario? And then two, if that happens, is this going to be a financial death sentence for me or is this going to be a financial apocalypse? And then if so, we need to put risk mitigation factors with that And so probably nine out of 10 investment cases, this risk mitigation can be achieved by simply lowering your debt levels. But then if you go into other investment classes, it gets a bit more complicated. Like say in real estate, for example, you have to make sure that you're on top of your compliances and that you're adequately insured and things like that. But yeah, the principle is though, is that think about the possible but very unlikely worst extreme case scenario and just make sure that isn't going to be a personal financial Armageddon. I also remember that Warren Buffett had this quote, it was rule number one, never lose money. And rule number two is don't forget rule number one. And when I first started investing, I, I thought that was actually a bit of a silly quote. I mean, it's just like, if you want to be the best baseballer in the world, always strike home runs. If you want to be the best soccer player in the world, always score goals. And so I always used to think that was a bit of a silly quote. And in my later years, I now understand that what he's actually trying to say is that you need to be a conservative investor and you need to basically hedge your investments and structure your investments. So that way, even if something really bad does happen in the markets, you're not going to take a massive loss. And then on top of that as well, there's the mathematics of it as well. So some investors are familiar with this, but some aren't that if you say take a 10% loss, you need the market to grow by 11% in order to get back to exactly where you were. Or if you take a 50% loss, you have to grow by 100%. Or if you take a 90% loss, you have to grow by 1000%. And so to paraphrase that in a non-mathematical way, losses hurt more than gains gain. And so that sort of backs up the needing to think about the worst case scenario when setting up your investment allocation. 
Do you find, or have you met people who don't think about that worst case scenario when they're investing? I mean, obviously there's a lot of people who just sort of go in and think, oh, I'm going to go make lots of money on the stock market. And then they make all these rookie errors or they don't study or they don't even know what they're doing. And then they get burnt and then lose the opportunity of using the market to make money in a sensible, conservative way, as Warren Buffett would say. Yes, absolutely. And to answer that question, I have seen that. And I mostly see it from investors who weren't around during the GFC. Uh, For those of us who weathered through the GFC, we either had proper structures in place and were fine, or we learned that lesson and have now adapted to it. And I see actually a lot of this in the crypto market, where there is a lot of optimism about what could possibly go right, but there's very little protection on what could possibly go wrong. And actually, speaking of the crypto market as well, you recently had an interview with Justin Azadon, and he was talking about the ETF for cryptocurrency. And I personally, for shares, I'm a big fan of ETFs because I just love how it automatically diversifies the risk. And so I found that very interesting. And I like the idea that, that, yeah, you can sort of diversify your risk and protect yourself. Because the way I see cryptocurrency today is that it's very similar to what tech was in the late 90s, or it's similar to what moting was in the 1900s, where, yes, there are going to be some super multimillionaires out of this. But the problem is we don't know which five or 10 companies or currencies they're going to be out of the thousands of startups that exist right now and there's no way to know which five in the thousand it'll be and so that's why i'm very much like the idea of diversifying investments is that how you address risk diversification is that the main way the main tool that you would use yes absolutely and also with a long-term mindset and so with the covid crash as we all remember i think the market lost about 35 40 percent And I remember when that was happening, and uh, I'm also a big fan of the dollar cost averaging strategy. And for those listeners who don't know what dollar cost averaging is, it basically means that instead of spending all your money once a year, you invest it, say, 10 or 12 times per year just to level out the risk. And so to me, like when the market's booming, or when it's like, oh, hooray, my portfolio's gone up in value. And then when the market goes down, it's a hooray, I can get shares at a discounted price. And with that as well, even before I even put any money into shares though, I'm a big fan of having a big emergency cash fund. And the emergency cash fund, to me, it's double-purposed. And so for one, it's what it's designed for. Like if you've got an unexpected vet bill, which I have gotten a lot of those recently for my dog, poor Smokey. And then two, if you do get that black swan event and the market does have a massive crash, or then you do have a bit of money aside where you can actually snap up those bargains and then also still have enough left over to keep you fed while you're looking for another job. <laughs> So yeah, going back to the whole safety first thing, before even thinking about investing in shares, I'm a big fan of having an emergency fund. And how much should be in that emergency fund? That is very much based on an individual case-by-case situation. So say, for example, you're single, you're in your 20s, and you don't really have any responsibilities. You probably could be as low as having 5K. But say if you've got pets or kids or financial expenses, or then it'll need to be a lot higher. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so we've raced a little ahead at the moment because uh, we're talking about investing, but you've got to get to the stage where you've got some money to invest. What do people need to put in place 
so that they can start having a bit of excess money that can be put into investments that will grow in the future? Okay, well, to answer that, I'd say two words, good habits. And so the real point that I want to get across is that if you want to be successful in anything, not only investing, but whether it be for fitness, learning a new skill, or even running a business, it's not about having an odd great moment here or there. It's about what you do every single day and what results you get, little results that you get every single day. And there's a great example, actually, that it's not about money, but I thought it illustrates this point perfectly. So I was reading the book Shoe Dog. It's uh, written by Phil Knight. He's the founder of uh, Nike Shoes. And basically, he was talking about his business partner, Bill Bellerman. And he had this approach that what he used to do is he used to actually tinker and tailor his own athlete's running shoes. And he had this obsession of being able to slice ounces or milligrams off the weight of the running shoes. Kind of like the way cyclists are shaving off little bits of their bikes to uh, just gain a little bit of extra speed. Actually, yeah, that is another field that that's applied for. But basically what he worked out though was that if he could take one ounce off the weight of per shoe over a 1.6 kilometer race or a one mile race and with the two or three steps per meter, that is the equivalent of a runner carrying an extra 25 kilograms after a one mile race. And when you consider that these races, they come down to like seconds, in some cases even milliseconds. And then if you've got a heavy shoe, you have a 25 kilogram disadvantage. And I thought that was incredible. And so I'll circle this back around to money. And let's just say that you found some creative way to save $10 per day. Well, guess what? That's like $3,500 per year. And a few people can probably see where I'm heading with this. I'm going to talk about the coffee every day. The smashed avocado. <laughs> yeah, the smashed avocado and the daily coffees. But before your listeners tune out, all I ask is that they hear me out. And so we've probably all heard the argument before that a $5 coffee per day, and that's roughly $1,800. And a lot of people are happy knowing that that's the cost, just fully enjoyment that that brings them. But what I'm proposing though is not actually to actually cut out the daily coffees. I'm proposing a third solution. So if you invest, say, as little as $500 into a coffee machine, you can actually just make your own coffees and then that coffee machine will pay for itself and what you save within about six months. And furthermore, for making a coffee for anyone else, I'm a horrible barrister. I make horrible coffees. But for the way that I like coffees, I'm the best barrister in the world. <laughs> and so it sort of becomes a bit of a fun thing too that you sort of can make the perfect coffee to adapt to your own taste buds. And so sometimes like finding ways to save money, it isn't always a negative. Sometimes you can actually find a bit of enjoyment and finding creative ways to save money and also develop new hobbies in the meantime. Sorry, I'm rambling off a little bit. That's okay. You're doing my job for me. It's okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. It's early in the new year. I'm still in holiday mode. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Well, with the New Year's resolution, I'll just say that. Oh, that was exactly my next question. What about the New Year's <laughs> resolution? If someone's come into this and um, they've made some New Year's resolutions, where do they start? Okay, yeah, well, the best way to actually start, I believe, is actually to have a budget. And before you tune out and say, oh, no, I don't do budgets or I've tried it before, I believe that the way most of us are encouraged to do budgets is actually incorrect because the way most of us are encouraged to do budgets is that we have to do all this boring sort of accounting style work and then we have to set all these standards for ourselves. It's a spreadsheet. It's a spreadsheet, yes. And also because we're sort of guessing how much things actually cost and how much our lifestyles actually cost, we put in these unrealistic goals for us lowering expenses and then we fail it in the first month because you've got no data points. And then guess what? You fail in the second month and then you get frustrated with it and then you give up on it. So when I say start a budget, I'm actually talking about a totally different approach. Instead of looking at it as some arbitrary rule book that you must follow, I'm saying treat a budget purely as a gauge or a radar or just something that's recording what's actually going on. So don't even set yourself any rules or any standards of what you must do. Just purely count what's going in, what's going out and what your net worth is. And then after about six months or probably even a year realistically, 
only then do you have enough actual data points to then actually set yourself realistic goals that you can actually realistically achieve. And then it won't be frustrating as well. Yeah, that's one of the things about a budget. It's really hard to work out because, you know, you, you kind of worked it out and then suddenly you go, oh, the rego's due. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you, you haven't factored that in. Yeah. Yeah. And in my opinion, it does take about a full year to be able to set fully realistic targets. But if you're very motivated and you want, want to get into it a little bit earlier, you probably can start experimenting with goals after about six months. But you probably will find you'll still have some teething issues, like your rego, for example, because that's once a year as opposed to once every six months. Yeah, or the vet bills. Yeah, the vet bills. Oh, holy cow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that, that was another thing of the budgets too that I found pretty interesting, that you actually learn some little interesting quirky things about finance. For example, pet insurance is the only insurance that I've actually made more money back than what I've actually paid. And so that's not related to any goal or any endeavor or anything like that, but I just thought it's a little bit of an interesting fact. And it's also interesting. I'm a big fan of electric cars, but I still have a diesel engine. But I basically know the price point that I need to get to for electrical cars to be worth it so I can adjust it financially because I know exactly how much I'm spending on fuel and car servicing every year. And so, yeah, it's just good to answer these little questions that you have floating around your head every now and then. Yeah, I guess working out how the wheels turn in this. But speaking of cars, you're not a fan of car loans? No, not at all. And don't get me wrong, I'm not against people buying brand new cars as there needs to be some quality of life and so on and so forth. But unfortunately, I think the car loan is basically the vehicle that gets people in the middle lower class and it traps them there. And I'll provide a mathematical example. Yeah, I'm talking about forbidden maths, so sorry, I'd try not to make this too boring for you. <laughs> so let's just say hypothetically that you had $10,000 in savings, but you wanted a $60,000 car. And so in that situation, obviously, you could put down the $10,000, but then you need a $50,000 car loan. And last I checked the websites, the interest rate's approximately 7.5%. I know, it's outrageous, isn't it? I just saw that last night. I think, God, how are they still charging those kind of rates? Yeah, especially when mortgages and everything else is so low. So let's just say we play this out. And so all up, you get the car financed, but you'll find after seven years, you would have spent $74,500. And so you're essentially paying $14,500 for nothing. So in seven years, you're going to have a seven-year-old car that's depreciated a lot and you're going to have basically $0 to your name or you might have some money from money you saved from other avenues, Lucky Coffees, for example. <laughs> but let's just say instead that you said, okay, I've got this $10,000, but I can buy a car for $10,000. So I'll just buy that. And then instead of doing those car payments, if you actually invested into the market index ETF fund, and assumed a 100-year moving average historical growth rate of roughly 10%, after seven years, you'd have $94,000 in shares. And so let's just say you go to bed tonight and then you wake up tomorrow. Would you prefer to have a seven-year-old car and no money to your name? Or would you rather have a really, really old car, but then $94,000 in shares? And then with that too, I mean, you can either choose to keep investing that or you could choose to, you could probably even buy a brand new Tesla or some other car that you particularly want even a lot more. Or let it compound for another 20 years. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And so to me, it just opens up so many better options. And just to repeat, I'm not actually against people buying nice cars. I mean, there needs to be some quality of life and cars kind of are fun. But the only thing I'm sort of against is just borrowing money for something that depreciates. So although we're talking about cars here, it also applies to jet skis. Yes, I'm talking to you, coal mine workers, and boats and uh, just things like that. Where would you suggest listeners starting to invest their money? I know we're talking ETFs in general, but um, you really do need to have at least $500 to start investing in the share market. And even if you're going to invest in property, you need a lot more. What are the kind of little baby steps that get you between 
basically having no savings at all into starting to get a portfolio that's going to mean something in your life. Okay, yeah. Well, the first step is to start a budget. And when I say budget, I mean the type of budget I was talking about earlier, not a set of standards budget. And then the second thing is just to be mindful of your little habits and then try to be creative about little things that you can do every day that you can sort of save money on without actually necessarily affecting your quality of life. And then step two, I'd say, is to wipe away all your non-mortgage debts. So even if that means downgrading your car and also having this mentality that you may need to rough it for about seven to 10 years just to be able to kickstart your portfolio. And one thing a lot of people don't realize about these multi-million dollar portfolios though is that they say, oh, there's a multi-million dollar portfolio. You need money to make money and blah, blah, blah. But every single one of these multi-million dollar portfolios started off as a $1,000 portfolio and then a 3000 and then a 5000 and so on. So the important thing is just actually to start. So that's a big thing, just your habits and actually get started. And then also build a, an emergency fund. So at least 5K, but if you have pets or family members or kids or what have you, definitely a bit more. And then after you've got your emergency fund, after you've got your good habits and you find yourself having a little bit of fat left over after every time you get paid from your employer, start investing money every month. And so... If you actually want to buy into individual shares, the four best brokers I recommend would be Self Wealth, Superhero, and if you want it to be attached to a major bank, NAB is the cheapest and Comsec isn't too far behind them, so they're pretty reasonable as well. And there's also, you can go down the micro-investor route. If you want to be investing a little bit more frequently and sort of as soon as you get $200, you want to invest it straight away, well, maybe being, going down the micro-investing route would be a good way too. And the three big players for that are Raise, Comsec Pockets, and Spaceship. And for them, unlike normal brokers, out of the micro-investors, all three of them are pretty reasonable in their fees. And yeah, so I'd say that. And so after you're there, basically just repeat every month. So update your budget, see what fat's left from your paycheck and put it into whatever investment you choose. It's still getting over that psychological hurdle though, isn't there? That you're going to start off, it's going to be 10 cents here and 20 cents there and a dollar here and then $2 there. It's going to be a long time before it's a meaningful amount. How do you think about this to help keep your eye on the long-term goal? Something that really helps personally with this is that talking to people that are further along than you in the journey, and quite often you hear stories about how people say, oh, my first 100000 took me about 10 years to make and my second 100000 only took three years and my third 100000 took six months and so on and so forth. It's a rolling stone gathering moss, is it? That's the metaphor I was trying to find. And Charlie Munger, he's the very famous investor, he even said that exact same quote except he applied it to the first million. Yeah, and so every great thing in life, even outside of investing, every great thing that exists in the world right now started off small. Mm. Have you spoken to people who've read your book and um, taken on board some of the lessons that you've been teaching and um, any of these stories that you can share with us? I've spoken to a few readers, but unfortunately, I've only released the book very recently. And so it's too soon to talk about results from it. But the big takeaway that a lot of people were surprised about is in Australia, all we hear about is property and property. And then after we're done hearing about property, we hear some more about property. And Many readers are actually very surprised to learn that the share market actually grows faster than property, not only in Australia, but also in the United States. And of course, this is talking about 100-year moving averages. This isn't just talking about a single year. And so on a long-term basis, shares do appreciate faster than property. And I know there's going to be the contrasting argument, though, to say that, oh, yes, but property is leveraged and you might have 20% in property, so you're actually firefolding your money from a 20% return instead of just making 20%. But then my counter-argument to that, though, is just to say, well, you can also leverage shares, although I don't recommend doing that. I think the biggest takeaway a lot of people are getting away from the book is that shares is quite often overlooked. And also, even with a lot of the new money, a lot of people are getting interested in crypto. 
And a lot of the old money is interested in real estate. And it sort of just seems that shares are sort of been, not completely, but semi-forgotten about. That's on the offense side of money. And then for the defense side of money, it's a bit of an observation that was, it's obvious once it's pointed out, but it's not obvious until it's pointed out. And so there's this quote that I often use that um, a dollar saved is the equivalent of a dollar 32 earned. And so to explain what that means, let's just look at a typical Australian worker. So they might be on $50,000 per year or $60,000 or whatever, and let's just assume that's their base wage. And so if they found ways to make extra money, whether it be a second job or a passive income investment, every dollar that they make, they're going to lose one third of it in taxes. However, if they found ways to save money, they'll keep 100% of it. And so earning extra money is great, and I absolutely encourage that. But if you're trying to find extra money to squeeze out or extra money to invest, one thing that I just really want to point out, and this isn't even a call to action, it's more just pointing out a concept, is that you're actually 33% more efficient if you can find ways to save money than what you'd be if you'd find ways to make money. Hmm. So you've got the books, you've got a website, and now a YouTube channel. Tell us about that and um, David Allen World. Oh, yeah. So basically, it's the modern world. And if you don't adapt to it, you'll be left behind. And so at first, I was more just interested in being an author because I actually love investing. I find it very interesting. Something about trying to find maximum efficiencies. It's not even so much about the money. It's more just trying to find how you can put in as little input to get as maximum output in a long-term basis. And and you can apply that to electricity use or whatever medium. So I'm, I'm going all politician of you. I'm sort of... Are you kind of obsessive about saving money? Uh, yeah, well, I'd say obsessive efficiency. And money just happens to be one of those avenues where I am obsessed with efficiency. So to go back to your original question, sorry, I was more interested in just delivering that message into a book. And now of trying to be more efficient, I'm actually finding that the message actually gets out a lot faster and wider if I can actually deliver it across a lot of social media platforms. And each one presents their own challenges too. Like for example, with Instagram, it's all about doing the still little images and small little quotes. With YouTube, you do have a little bit of license to explain concepts properly. And then with TikTok, you have to try and cram everything in as much little time as possible and just hope that they don't scroll up and tune out after 20 seconds. And so each of the social media channels, as I'm sure you find for yourself, they will present the unique opportunities and challenges. So yeah, basically, I'm just using the social media and the book to try and spread this message of the learnings that I have of um, how to be efficient with your money. So if listeners want to find out more about you, where can they find you on these many social media channels? Oh, yes. So the website is howtobuyyourhappiness.com. And unfortunately, howtobuyhappiness.com was already taken. So I had to put in the your word in there. And for TikTok, it's uh, howtobuyyourhappiness. And for YouTube, it's just David Allen. But if you put in the search howtobuyyourhappiness David Allen on the YouTube search, I'm pretty confident it'll show up as well. Fantastic. Dave Allen, thank you very much for joining me. No worries, Phil. And yeah, I've got to say, been a long-time listener and a long-time fan, so it's actually a huge honour to be interviewed by you, and I very much appreciate you having me on, and I feel very privileged. Oh, no problems. <laughs> it's great to have you on. I'm just, you know, talking to an ordinary bloke trying to do good and make a life for himself. That's great. Thank you. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 